Hi, I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. It's a great pleasure to host on the podcast Dr. Rachel Fish, one of our community's most brilliant academics, who also writes and speaks extensively about the challenging atmosphere on college campuses today. She is acutely concerned about the growing inclination to impose groupthink theories on students and faculty alike, and has spoken out and written extensively about the impact this atmosphere has on the institution of the university, on Jewish students in particular, and on American society. Dr. Fish earned her master's degree from Harvard University in contemporary thought in Judaism and Islam, and her Ph.D. in Near Eastern and Judaic Studies from Brandeis University. At Harvard, she held the Rohr Visiting Professorship, where she lectured on modern Israel. And at Brandeis, she was the executive director of the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies. Dr. Fish is active not only in the academic world. She launched the Foundation to Combat Antisemitism and was its founding executive director, and has recently established a new organization called Boundless to fight antisemitism through education, research, and community partnerships. Dr. Fish is the kind of university professor that I always gravitated to when I was a student. She is such a clear thinker. She cares deeply about her students' well-being, including the inculcation of critical thinking skills that she believes is in decline in many of today's universities. I invited her to the podcast to shed light on what is really happening today on college campuses. You're in for a treat. It's such an uplifting experience to listen and learn from someone who knows so much and is such a clear and articulate thinker. Dr. Rachel Fish. Rachel, welcome to In These Times. I've been counting down these days to have an opportunity to have an extended conversation with you because you're one of those people, those less than a handful of people I've ever met in my life who, when you listen to them, it suddenly dawns on you, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I've been thinking. I just couldn't put it all together. But when she connected the dots for me, wow, that's exactly my sentiments as well. And every time I hear you, there's something like that in what you uh, say. It's a great privilege to have you on board. I think that's a sign of real brilliance, by the way. Welcome to In These Times. Thank you so much, Rabbi Hirsch. Your compliments are very, very generous. And if nothing else, you have made my mother very happy. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't I start with a general question? I saw your uh, website. I love what you have there. You say, scholar, warrior. So explain that to us. What do you mean by that? You'll appreciate this, Rabbi Hirsch. When I was in the professional world and people say, you know, what jobs are you looking for? What are your aspirations? I was never one of these individuals motivated by a title. It's just not who I am. I said to an individual at one point in time who asked me, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, I want to be a scholar warrior. To me, that is exactly where my educational and professional trajectory have led. Meaning, in order to be a scholar, I needed to be able to study at the highest possible levels so that I could teach at the highest possible levels. And that meant for me teaching in a university. And I went to a university to pursue my doctorate in the fields of Israeli history, Zionist thought, Jewish history, and Middle Eastern studies, really a nexus of all of those. I wanted to be deeply thinking about the complexity and the nuance related to that intersection, religion, 
history, politics, nationalism, identity. I was able to do that at Brandeis University. And my focus was Israeli history and Zionist thought. And I had the ability then to teach at universities. And I love teaching. For me, teaching is my oxygen. The way in which I wanted to be able to teach was to work in a way that would allow for broader accessibility to the subject matter, because most people don't read the footnotes that we're trained to write. And there are also real fights in the world, fights that I have been involved in since childhood because of where I grew up, fights happening at the university that I have been involved in since I was a graduate student when the institution took foreign funding that was highly problematic, and fights in the university having to do with the politicization and polemical debates around Israel. That requires a bit of a warrior-type DNA. And I have that. I really have tried to meld these two aspects of my identity in order to do the work that I do best. Can I ask you, before we even get into the uh, Jewish scene, what's your impression just generally on campus? Is the campus still the citadel in American society for free speech? Is it about what it claims to be about, the pursuit of truth, the opening of the minds of students for sure, but also of academics and faculty who are interested in debating and hearing other opinions and so on? Is the university the same institution it was when I was in university 30 years ago? The university that I think you and I idealize is a university that prioritizes veritas, emmet, truth. And in the pursuit for veritas or emmet, the goal is to have sharp critical thinking skills in order to question, to harness students' and faculty's curiosities, and to know that where you start is most definitely not where you will end up. And it should be a marketplace of ideas. Unfortunately, too many universities are not at all focused on that marketplace of ideas. There are certain litmus tests that have been created that presume the end point. There is, I would say, a certain level of indoctrination and herd mentality, not just among students, but among faculty. There are some faculty who aren't asking the critical questions because they don't want to be perceived as not falling in line with a particular political and cultural zeitgeist. And all of this comes at a serious expense. And how did this happen? Who's at fault? Who's pursuing this as opposed to what we always assumed was the role of academia and university, which was, as you say, the pursuit of truth and the engagement of ideas, not the imposition of a particular theory? There are intellectual ideas, all of which have serious value if you see each of them as a tool in a toolkit. Using them as tools, very valuable. The challenge becomes when these ideas become the primary prism through which to refract all issues. So let me explain some of these ideas. One is the influence of Edward Said's work, Orientalism. 
a very important book written in 1978. The Cliff Notes version of Said's Orientalism says the following. Those who come from the West ought not to impose their Western lens, culture, and values on those who come from the East because they're not in accordance and aligned with one another, and it's an imposition of a worldview. So let's take an example not related to Israel. A controversial subject in some circles, female genital mutilation. We know that, for example, in parts of the Horn of Africa, there are some Africans who have engaged in female genital mutilation and say that this is either part of an understanding of a particular practice within Islam or within Arab society or the cultural tribal aspects of their society. There is a professor with whom I worked as a student teaching assistant when I was a student. And when this issue was raised, she said, we cannot impose our Western understanding of female genital mutilation on those from that region. And we wouldn't be doing a service to that subject if we did, because we are from outside that culture and we are not native to it. Well, that's odd, Rabbi Hirsch. It's very odd. That's an example of the impact of Orientalism not related to Israel directly, and yet Israel will enter into that conversation. Another intellectual factor is post-colonialism. As post-colonialism emerged in the academy during the period of the late 1960s, the idea was that everything associated with colonialism ought to be thrown out. There were no positives associated with colonialism. In that equation, Israel is viewed as a colonialist, imperialist entity amidst the quote-unquote native indigenous region of the Middle East. Postmodernism. The idea of postmodernism suggests that there are no objective facts. There are only equal narratives. Well, as a historian, for me, that poses a serious challenge. Facts matter. Yes, you can construct different narratives around those facts, but facts hold a different weight than an individual or collective narrative. So these kinds of intellectual ideas have a lot of impact they also are at a point in time in which the academy is looking at what is happening in the period of the late 1960s in the world. They see what's happening in Vietnam. They see what's happening in terms of Algeria and France. And some of these intellectual ideas then are going to become that prism for these academics in order to suggest that they provide the primary way through which to understand the world. Israel, when it enters into this equation, is not going to get a fair shake in the marketplace of ideas. And that then is a challenge. Does this impose an atmosphere on the faculty, before we even get to the students, of 
towing the line? Is there some kind of self-censorship going on? When I was a young professional, just started working in the professional world, I was working with students at Columbia University to help them address the specific concerns they were facing in the classroom. I decided to meet with faculty members in the humanities. I would knock on their door and they would hurry me into their offices, close their door, and then whisper, this is really bad. And I would be speaking in a completely normal voice and realized very quickly that these faculty felt serious personal and professional repercussions. And I actually think it has only gotten worse. There are some universities who require their faculty to sign a diversity, equity, and inclusion statement. Sign it like a loyalty statement. This is not the 1950s. This is the 21st century. I know in last May 2021, during the Israel-Hamas conflict, there were some universities and university presses that issued statements clearly against Israel and what was happening to Israel was completely ignored. Hamas was not part of that equation, but it made it very clear, especially if you are a junior academic, if you do not yet have tenure, that this press would not be a press that would be amenable to your scholarship because you probably are not presenting the scholarship in a way that they would align themselves with. There were departments in many different universities, not individual faculty members, departments who issued statements around the May 2021 conflict, completely blaming Israel for what was happening, ignoring the agency of the Palestinians, and not at all taking into consideration the increased acts of anti-Semitism that were occurring and continue to occur in this country. So we know for sure that it is very challenging to hold certain views, particularly about Israel and Zionism on campus for faculty and can absolutely harm their professional careers. What should parents know about a particular university? Are they thinking about this? Should they be thinking about this? How would you guide them? I would argue they absolutely should be thinking about this. And I would also say they probably need to be thinking about this before their child is graduating from high school because some of these issues are now impacting middle schools and high schools, not just campuses. So they need to be able to understand these issues and how they may be occurring within these younger educational settings. Some campuses are much more challenging and there is much more hostility than other campuses. It is very important to say not every single campus is burning. But for many Jewish students, particularly those who go to the elite universities, they will encounter this in some form. Either in real life or online, they will experience this hostility. And this happens a lot on the coast. It doesn't mean that the middle of the country is exempt from it, but it doesn't happen at all at the same rate. You need to be looking at what exists on campus. Meaning, is there a Jewish studies department? Is Israel studies included in the Jewish studies department? Are the faculty associated with the Association for Israel Studies and the Association for Jewish Studies? 
Is there a Hillel on campus and a Chabad on campus? Did the university administration participate in a program in order to be sensitized around Jews, Judaism, and Israel? What kind of student groups exist on campus within the Jewish community? Culturally, religiously, politically, where does Zionism enter that equation? What are the options for students? What groups exist on campus that have a history of posing a challenge to Jewish students? I am not talking about engaging in critical questioning and disagreement and debate, but actually targeting Jewish students. So Students for Justice in Palestine is one of those organizations, historically, that has presented a challenge to the conversation around Israel. When you say targeting, do you mean physically, targeting physically Jews, or do you mean something else? It's a range. We've had some instances of physical intimidation, bullying, and targeting. We've had instances of pulling down mezuzot off of dorm rooms. We've had instances of online harassment of Jewish students for their Jewish and Israel affiliations and identities. We've had situations in which some universities have said there will not be kosher food on campus. We've had vandalism. And when all of this happens, how does the university respond? Is there money coming in from foreign influence, Rabbi Hirsch, like Qatar and other places that influence not only subjects that will be taught by who is teaching them, but extracurricular programming on the campus with outside speakers, public educational initiatives for K through 12 educators. These are serious questions that parents need to be ready to ask when they go and visit a university. One of the things you mentioned was that there is a prevailing theory of looking at the world in terms of oppressors and oppressed, and whites are in the oppressor group, and Jews are in the white group. Aren't there a lot of Jewish students who see themselves exactly that way? There are many Jewish students who see themselves as being part of a larger white society. Part of the opportunity that we have as a Jewish community before these students ever walk onto a college campus is to help our younger community members understand that Jews are an ethno-religious community. We are diverse. There are many types of Jews. The reason we don't fit into that categorization of being white and powerful is that we have never been deemed white in any shape or form historically. Meaning, the hard right has always perceived us as the other. We could never be white. That's why you hear in Charlottesville in 2017, Jews will not replace us. The hard left, which attempts to make us white, even though the hard right wouldn't accept that, does so through this lens that you've identified as power and uses language like, we benefit from white supremacy. Well, you and I know historically, Jews have never benefited from white supremacy. White supremacy has only targeted Jews. 
So language here is being weaponized and manipulated and hijacked for very clear political purposes. We have to help educate young people much earlier about the way this has happened in order for them to have the ability to counter it and to stand up against it. Because what happens so often is that Jewish students want to be, like other students, on the correct side of history. And because of that larger litmus test that has been put in place, it means that there is pressure to go along with the understanding as presented by the herd mentality. To question it, to challenge it, means you could be potentially labeled a racist or a supporter of apartheid. And these are the worst sins in the 21st century. And no student I know wants to be affiliated with that. So we have to help them understand how they can clearly articulate, without being experts, the false reasoning and rationale that they are being presented with and show the hypocrisy and the absurdity in order to be able to stand proudly as Jews. And I just want to say very clearly here, the goalposts keep being moved. First, it's about Zionism. Then it's about Israel. And then it's about Jews. And we cannot be mistaken that at the end of the day, it is about Jews. That is a mistake that a lot of Jewish students and Jews make themselves, is it not? Some of them insist on the distinction between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. And I myself am an anti-Zionist Jew. How could I be anti-Semitic? That's right. Historically, we know anti-Zionism was a response to Zionism, a legitimate response along the political spectrum of possibilities. And we know that anti-Zionists still exist today, even inside the state of Israel. And we can have that nuanced discussion. And if you have the right people around you with whom to engage, who have the intention of talking about these issues in a serious, nuanced, and complex way, please, we need that thought in order to be able to hone and consider and challenge our own ideas. But there's another conversation that's happening in the external world that lacks that nuance, that isn't interested at all in the layers of complexity, and is simply trying to suggest that anti-Zionism is a politically acceptable way to engage in Jew hatred. And we cannot at all pretend it is anything other than that. If I can summarize what I think you've been saying is uh, on campus, there's kind of like a twofold criticism or uh, assault on Jewish sensibilities and on Jewish values. One is coming from the faculty. It's led by faculty who see the world in a certain way or have a political agenda. And then there's the general atmosphere amongst students who ferociously attack not only Israeli policies, but in effect, the essence of Zionism, the very legitimacy of the state of Israel. So could you expand more on that? Are we making more of it than we should Is it as serious as it's perceived in many quarters in the Jewish community? 20 years ago, I was invited to sit around a table to share my thoughts about what was happening within the university. And it was in the wake of 
the start of the BDS movement, which began at Harvard and MIT and then spread across the country. It was also after I had led a campaign for Harvard to return funds from an anti-Semitic source. I was invited to sit alongside major Jewish communal leaders as a very young person. And I said, you have to pay attention to what's happening on campus. What happens on campus does not stay on campus. It is not Vegas. Most of the individuals sitting around the table didn't take it seriously. They said, you know, it's just a handful of professors or kids are going to grow up and experience the real world. Their worldviews will change. And I recall saying very clearly, it is going to impact all aspects of society. And that is what we see today. We cannot at all pretend that what happened on campus didn't move from campus. The other piece of that is I'm concerned not only for Jewish kids, meaning the vast majority of students are non-Jewish. And these are individuals who are going to become business leaders, policy makers. They are going to be elected officials. And these individuals are going to be influenced by the orientation of intellectual ideas that I have shared with you. And it will impact how they vote, how they understand foreign policy, how they understand America's relationship to Israel, understand issues of anti-Semitism. And so it's not just about what impacts the Jewish community. It's also how this impacts the much larger non-Jewish community who will be educated informed and be making future decisions that impact the direction of this country. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Fish, I run an institution. It's not as big as a university, but I've been part of institutions for almost my entire career. It's the proclivity of the heads of institutions to pursue the best interests of the institutions themselves. And that kind of dictates trying to walk in the middle, not to support any form of extreme. So why are they either supporting this or allowing it to happen? It's a combination of factors. So much of the Jewish and Israel conversation is put under the guise of academic freedom and freedom of speech, particularly for university professionals, whether it's faculty or administrators, they can hide behind that veneer, even if it crosses a line into a discussion that is about the delegitimization and the dismantlement of the state of Israel. And they get away with it. Even though many university presidents where this is going on are Jewish themselves. And they, for all intents and purposes, they could be pro-Israel, even Zionists. That's right. First of all, let's be very clear that the conversations that are happening on campus, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions votes that come up regularly, that movement which many of us have said for quite a while is not about a nuanced discussion around what Israel should be doing in the territories of Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. It is not about where the green line should be, what you do with settlements, how do you balance the responsibility of holding power and treating minorities with the respect they deserve and have human dignity and human rights while at the same time ensuring the security of your citizens. Those are real conversations. That's what I want to focus on. That's what I want to spend my time on. That's not the conversation on campus. The conversation is, does Israel have a right to exist? And the answer is no. And most students just want to do their work. 
They want to get good grades. They want to join sororities and fraternities and be in social clubs and do intramural sports. And they say, why do I need to deal with all of these other issues? And they say, why does the Jewish community put it on me, on my shoulders, to have to address these issues? And they are right, especially when it's not just in real life, but also bullying on social media that they are pressured with on a regular basis because of these issues. These issues have persisted because they are at the level of academic orientation, administrative policy, faculty influence and control who set the tone for campus, and outside funding coming into that campus. Mm -hmm. So the presidents and the senior executives of universities don't actually have as much power, as much authority as we think they may or they would like. Is that true? Well, I do think the university administrators have a fair amount of power and authority. It's just a question of when do they choose to wield it and use it. And too often, they abdicate their responsibility when it comes to the Jewish conversation because it is not professionally beneficial to them to engage in it. And we have to actually leverage the relationships that many of us have from within our community in order to help sensitize university administrators to understand why these issues truly matter and how they impact the Jewish community. If I can just press you on the word leverage that you just used, do you mean also financial leverage? Absolutely. Why are you funding a university whose values are not in accordance with your own? We don't do that anywhere else. And you have to be a smart funder. Know that when you give the university money, it's no longer your money. And that's correct. It shouldn't be your money. It's the university's. But you, then you don't have control who sits in those professorships, what kinds of activities are created. And so you have to understand then who is hired and for what purpose, and then make a decision on whether or not you're going to be funding that institution. But that's a values conversation at the highest level that a funder should be having with the university and not carte blanche writing a check without understanding those issues. There's so many big Jewish donors to important universities. Are they having those conversations in your experience? Not enough. That then goes to the functioning and the effectiveness of the Jewish community itself, Jewish institutions, Jewish schools, rabbis, educators. What should we be doing to better mobilize our community? How can we be more effective. Rabbi Hirsch, you do this in your community, and hopefully other rabbis do this, and more will start to do this. We need to be able to address these issues in a holistic way and have multiple entry points. One, this doesn't happen just for parents who are about to send their kids to college. We need to be thinking of family education when the children are very young about the need to instill in them a sense of pride and what it means to be part of a tribe, part of a people, and part of a religious community. Two, we need all of our Jewish educators, all of our rabbis, all of our Jewish communal leaders to exhibit moral courage. That is a requirement, no matter how hard it may be, because all of our children are watching. 
And we are living in a world in which there is a serious lack of moral courage. And we have to be the exemplars of it. Number three, we have to inculcate a sense of resiliency in our children. I hear from so many Jewish parents, I just want my kids to feel comfortable. Comfort is not a Jewish value, period. We actually have to help our kids feel comfortable being very uncomfortable. We have to teach them to articulate who they are, what they believe, and why they believe it as early as five years old. We also have to teach them critical thinking skills. Yes, they need to feel a sense of emotional engagement with the land of Israel, Eretz Israel, with Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, and relationships with Israelis, all different types. But they also have to have the critical thinking skills to question in order to be able to have more nuanced discussions. And lastly, we need education. It has to be nuanced. It has to provide a historical scaffolding so that if students, young people, read something in the newspaper, hear something in the news, see something on social media, they're able to put it within a larger framework to understand it. All of those things are required by all of us. We have an awful lot of work to do. We sure do. Thank you very much. Keep up the good work. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for the opportunity and take good care. I'm very grateful to Dr. Fish for raising such critical questions for us. What happens to a free society when its universities are no longer perceived to be dedicated to the pursuit of truth, but to the pursuit of a theory of social justice? What are the broader consequences of universities abandoning the cultivation of critical thinking in students and abandoning an atmosphere of a free marketplace of ideas in exchange for creating and imposing litmus tests that presume the end point? To all of our student listeners, their parents, faculty members, is it true that sometimes you feel that you must conform? That as Dr. Fish described, there is a level of indoctrination and herd mentality among students, but also faculty? Do you agree with Dr. Fish that your teachers are increasingly abandoning the assumption of objective facts and free inquiry in favor of the promotion of a very clear political agenda? And if, in fact, much of this is occurring, why are the adults in the room, university presidents and administrators, not doing more to stem this tide? Why are parents and alumni not doing more to leverage their influence? And what about the faculty members themselves? Perhaps we expect too much of them, and even teachers in high school and middle school. I had not appreciated enough the enormous pressures on the faculty to conform that Dr. Fish described and how threatening it is to their careers to speak out and push back against these trends. Judaism is all about intellectual and political pluralism, the creation of what we call today a free marketplace of ideas so both majority and minority opinions can flourish. Our sages warned against the impulse to uniformity, the urge to just go along with the crowd, to run with the herd. For example, the rabbis looked at the well-known biblical episode of the golden calf and were particularly captivated by how a minority of Israelites managed to stage such an effective rebellion against Moses. A careful reading of the Bible suggests that only 3,000 people actually engaged in worshiping the idol. 3,000 people out of what tradition estimates to be around 3 million people, 0.1%. 
How did 0.1% of the population manage to sway the entire community? How did a tiny part of the community lead almost everyone else astray? We are easily swayed, our sages warned. Human beings are social animals. We belong in groups. We run with the herd. Most of us are reluctant or incapable of taking a stand that threatens our place in the herd. To take a stand against the group is to risk alienation, loneliness, banishment, and exile. This is what happened to the Israelites. They succumbed to the power of those who led them astray. The yearning to conform, to run with the herd, was perceived by the 99.9 percent not as the voice of the rabble-rousers, as Jewish tradition describes the 0.1 percent, but as the voice of God himself. And see how powerful the yearnings of conformity and approval are? They overturned the people's loyalty to Moses, their liberator, and shattered their loyalty to God who performed one miracle after another for them. They were still collecting God's manna falling daily from heaven while melting the gold to build the idol. We should heed the warning. It is not only power that destroys, weakness destroys as well. Courage is not only demonstrated on the battlefield. Courage is most required on the moral field, moral courage, born of the insistence of thinking for ourselves. Moral courage that values integrity, loyalty, and accountability over timidity is the human ingredient that is most difficult to bring out of ourselves. Jewish sages teach that when Moses was climbing down the mountain with the two stone tablets upon which God had carved the Ten Commandments, he had no trouble carrying the heavy slabs down the steep mountain path. They seemed light to him because they were inscribed by God and were precious to Moses. But when Moses saw the people dancing around the golden calf, the words disappeared from the stones and flew back to God. At that moment, the stone tablets dropped from Moses' hands and shattered into tiny pieces. They had become mere slabs and were too heavy for Moses to bear. We can bear heavy burdens and pay a heavy price as long as we remain true to ourselves. But the moment we lose our integrity, that fundamental essence that makes us who we are, the tablets of our lives become mere empty facades with no meaningful words, no independent thoughts, no principles, and no shape or purpose. And then we shatter into pieces to be picked up, melted down, and reconstituted into figurines of other people's ambitions. Until next time, this is In These Times. Thank you.